Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for listening. Actually, I just want to thank everyone, seriously, for listening. We actually found out there's people worldwide listening, which is great. Uh, you know, when I started this podcast back in oh, late 2017, I honestly didn't know where it would go. And now we're deep into 2018. We have tons of episodes out and we've interviewed great guests. And so thank you so much for listening. We also just found out that if you go to iTunes and search animals, we're the third or fourth one down. So I never thought that would happen in my wildest dream. So once again, this is pretty exciting, pretty exciting. And uh, I'm very excited about this guest I have today. I've been trying to pin him down for several months. He lives in Africa, so it's kind of hard to uh, have a sit-down podcast meeting with him. But he flew in to Boise, Idaho, specifically for this podcast. I actually wish that was true. But he is here face-to-face. I'm interviewing Dr. Munir Varani. He is uh, just a really good friend of mine, and he is the vice president of the Peregrine Fund, which, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is one of the greatest conservation organizations in the world. They uh, you know, saved the Peregrine Falcon from extinction, as well as the condor, among among many other species, and Dr. Varani's um, specialty is in African and Asian vultures, and they are in serious trouble. So we're going to talk to him um, just kind of about what is going on with the plight of vultures, and also, like I said, he's a very good friend, and he is the reason why I was able to go to Africa. He let me trail behind him so back in the day. So Dr. Varani, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Corbin. Are you excited? Very excited. I'm so, excited to see you after all these years. All these years? Yeah. So I look different? So much different? Put on some weight. That's what you said. <laughs> I ran three miles yesterday. I was like, I'm going to look so good for Munir. Well, I'm just fat and happy now. So that's, you know, getting married. and. <laughs> podcast and you've been doing really well well thank you we're really proud of you yeah well i'm very proud of you because your ted talk why i love vultures you did in 2012 has been seen by almost a million people you have been featured in nat geo you've done their facebook lives you're all over the world uh, you've and i just read this you have uh, published or you have written over a hundred scientific papers oh my goodness yeah i mean it's, <laughs> <laughs> nothing <laughs> And it's 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 been a long road. Uh, you know, the Peregrine Fund have been very good to me. Uh, they're like family. We're a small organization, but we have huge impact. Um, our president, Dr. Rick Watson, has been with us for about a year. Well, he's been with us for uh, you know over 25 years. Uh, he's recently taken over the leadership, and the organization and the staff. You know, we're on fire right now. We have a a brand new strategic plan for five years, and we're really focused put a dent, as he says, in the universe. Yes. Well, you guys are doing great. I see your stuff everywhere. And so the reason why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast is so many people don't realize there's a serious problem going on right now with vulture species in Africa and Asia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, you know, vultures have been around for over, over 20 million years. Uh, and the thing about that is they kind of take the back seat because, you know, they're considered the ugly betties of the world. And when you come from a place, you know, if you're in Asia, everybody's looking at tigers and they're looking at at elephants and rhino there. If you're in Africa, you know, everybody wants to talk about the African elephant and rhinos and lions and leopards. Uh, You know, in South America, jaguars and, and, you know, all these charismatic and and sexy animals. But vultures really, they play the most important role in the African savannas and in the, you know, in the Asian savannas during the days of when there were lots of ungulates over there. Uh, And what has happened over the last three or four decades is that because of land use changes, because of nomadic lifestyles have been curtailed, 
particularly in the part of the world where, where I live, in the East African region, uh, nomadic communities such as the Maasai, their movements have been curtailed. And as a result, they have come into direct conflict with predators such as lions, hyenas, and leopards. And whenever this happens, uh, you know, these animals, they, they find it really hard to get their prey as well. And so once in a while, they will go into a, a corral uh, and they will take a cow or a goat or a sheep. Uh, and when this happens, um, because the, the livestock farmer is not compensated, what they will do is they will find a readily available poison and they will poison the carcass uh, to try and kill the predator. But because vultures are obligate scavengers, they will be attracted to this carcass. And you could get about 100 to 150 vultures on a carcass, and every single one of those will die. Um, you know, the, uh, the majority of these birds will die around the carcass. Others will carry a sublethal dose. They will fly maybe two or three miles away. They will die, and then whoever eats those will die. And so it's a big <coughs> knock-on effect. So really, you know, one doesn't get a grasp of how many birds die in a poisoning event. Uh, and this is a problem that we're now addressing uh, all across sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in the South Asian continent, vultures were, uh, they were listed as, as the most abundant large raptors in the world. I mean, there were millions of them. And the reason there were so many in South Asia is because uh, you know, Hindus consider the cow a sacred animal. And when, uh, when a cow kills over and dies, nobody's going to eat it. And so Ooh. through the cultural system, you get a group of people who are the skinners. So they will skin the cow. They will use the skin for trade and commerce and leather. Um, and then the vultures would come and feed on the animal. And then the bones would be recycled. They would be, you know, they belong to the state government of whichever state that was in India. And then they would be auctioned for either fertilizer or animal feed. So it was a very good system that worked. Um, but uh, during the mid-1990s, there was a... Dr vulture populations basically collapsed by 99% in India. 99? 99%. So they went, you know, uh, some estimates are from, from 40 million birds that were all around the northern India-Pakistan area to just less than 10,000 breeding pairs. Oh, my goodness. And that was huge, uh, unprecedented. Uh, the Peregrine Fund, we were asked to go and investigate this problem. Uh, we set up field and diagnostic investigations in India, Nepal, and Pakistan. Uh, and it took us about, uh, you know, with great support from students there uh, and in-country partners such as the, the Bombay Natural History Society, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, Bird Conservation Nepal, um, uh, Nature Conservation in Pakistan. You know, a great partnership of people coming together. Uh, it took us three years to figure out what was killing these birds. Uh, it turns out it was a pain-killing drug uh, called diclofenac, which is in the same class of drugs as ibuprofen and voltaren. Okay. Uh, this is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that's administered to livestock. You know, it's it's very cheap. It's about 10 cents a shot, uh, readily available in multi-dose vials. You know, you can pick up 30 mLs or 50 milliliters of this uh, over the counter, and uh, they were you know they were injecting it to the cattle. And so if a cow had a limp. Uh, or was looking a little, you know, under the weather, they would just inject it and suddenly it would perk up uh, because it was a painkiller. Mm -hmm. And these farmers would see visible results. And as a result, you know, they kept overdosing. Uh, of course, it wasn't a cure. So eventually, when the, uh, when the animal keeled over and died, it was just so full of this drug that every vulture that fed on it uh, would die of kidney failure. 
really and how long would it take was this a prolonged process it would well they would we were finding most the majority of our dead birds on their back on their nests so they would eat uh, the contaminated carcass and then they would you know they had the ability to fly away and then when they got to their nest or their roosting sites you know the drug would take effect and then suddenly they were unable to excrete um, and they would just you know the the uric acid would precipitate mm -hmm. through their uh, visceral organs right into their viscera and they were just almost you know it was like a paralysis so they just couldn't move so they were dying we were finding birds in really good body condition and so it was uh, it was like a like one of these CSI episodes you know where mm -hmm. we had to look at the forensics and figure out you know we, we would find birds that had for example a disease avian tuberculosis or they had you know something else uh, but we were starting to find clusters and that is very indicative of a poisoning event. We just didn't know what the poisoning was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, through meticulous surveys through the markets, we were looking for something that was very cheap, readily available, that was being administered to livestock, and, and diclofenac just showed up like this. Right there. Right there. So we tested it um, on unreleasable birds. We found, you know, we put the science together, uh, and then we announced the results uh, in 2003. Uh, the great positive of all this is that the Indian government was able to ban this drug for veterinary use well, in, in three years later. And uh, through our surveys, we're, 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 we have seen that populations are slowly starting to recover or at least stabilize. You know, the crash is over. Um, and in some places, numbers have even increased. But they will never get back to what they were in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think people want them in those large numbers because at that time they also presented a huge risk to uh, um, large aircraft as they were landing and taking off. Really? There were just thousands of these birds all over. Wow. And that's interesting. So we actually had someone, um, Diane, on, uh, a good friend and a friend of yours who went to India with you. She, she was a student, and she was saying that when she went there to India to go survey vultures, she hardly saw any. I mean, she said it was insane. She said when you would see a vulture, it was like, stop the car, everyone. This is like a great moment. And I was shocked because, yeah. you know, because in Africa, when I went to Kenya, you know, they were more numerous. I mean, I would say like in the Mount Samar where we were than in India. So that's interesting. It's yeah, it's, it's very interesting because if you look at the Asian subcontinent, you know, in that part of the world, people, you know, they, they performed an action which was, you know, administering medication to livestock. So they were unaware that through their actions they were causing this catastrophic decline uh, of these vultures. And in that part of the world, there are four species that are now listed as critically endangered. And that means without conservation intervention, these birds are going to go extinct. But there's a group of people out there, the Bombay Natural History Society, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and with support from various state governments, they're able to have a breeding facility uh, for these vultures, and you know they've done really, really well. And now they're slowly starting to put the birds back out in the wild to look at whether diclofenac or other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are still having an impact on these populations. Whereas, whereas in Africa, uh, there is uh, it's a completely different problem. You have people who are deliberately poisoning um, predators. Uh, to kill the predators, um, most of them are unaware that this is having an impact on vulture populations. Uh, and it's very clear, you know, when you have reduced vulture populations, 
you've got more predators like hyenas that come together at a carcass. So you've got increased contact rates. You've got feral dogs that are starting to come uh, to these carcasses as well. So you have a greater chance of spreading diseases than when vultures are there because you know, vultures very rapidly consume these carcasses and as a result prevent uh, the spread of pathogenic organisms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just to go back just to Africa, because I was so unaware. I mean, I, obviously, I'm still obsessed with Africa. But speaking about the Maasai Mara, and for listeners who don't know where that is, part of the northern Serengeti ecosystem in Kenya, probably one of the greatest places on earth to see wildlife, wouldn't you say? Like the greatest concentration of predators and prey. And But what I didn't realize when I went there is that as you're driving to the Maasai Mara, right on the outskirts, you have cows everywhere. The Maasai have their cattle. And so... I had no idea, and so and, and that's the issue, right? They bring their cows into the park, and then you have, you know, a hyena take a cow, and then you just have this issue. And uh, I remember you saying that the furdan, is that correct? The f- fear-dan, furdan, is just you said that it was odorless, cheap, it even kills the flies. Yeah, that so that is a serious problem. What you're seeing, I mean, the African, you know, economies, countries in Africa are are booming. You know, there's a big rise in in economy uh, you've got uh, you've got developments and you've got investors from China you've got developers from India from other parts of the world who are coming in you know the railway is going to be built uh, there's a big drive for renewable energy so you've got wind farms coming all over the landscape uh, power lines um, you know land is being sold um, for various development factories for uh, industrial parks so what you've got is you know you've got a growing human population but you've also got a human population that is, is, is getting wealthier. And as a result, uh, people like the Maasai are able to buy more cows. So for example, you know, the northern part of the Maasai Mara, there is a very good drive to increase wilderness areas. So you've developed all these, cons- one has developed all these conservancies to ensure that wildlife move from the Serengeti into the Maasai Mara into the north, but also further north into these conservancies. And it's a fantastic model. But these conservancies have been leased by the, by the Maasai people over there. And they're getting direct financial benefits for these conservancies. And what happens is when they get this, this, uh, the money that comes through there, um, they're buying more cattle. And so it, it, it's a oh. bit of a catch-22 situation. Uh, so because you know, there are, there's restricted grazing in these conservancies with a lot of cattle, they take them back into the parks. And so the problem in the Maasai Mara is not more that predators come into the corrals at night to kill the animals, but because you've got livestock into the parks at night, you know, the lions are, are sitting there under the trees and they see all this food coming to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to take a cow or two. Yeah. Uh, and of course that upsets the people and they will just get these, uh, this, um, Poison. So Firidan was one of them. It's a it's a carbamate, mm-hmm. uh, odorless. It's a, a, a purplish crystal. But now there's another pesticide. It's called uh, carbosulfan, which is also carbamate. And what that does is uh, it's used for ticks uh, on sheep and goats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it comes from across the border. So while some of it is available in the villages around the Maasai Mara, the vast majority comes across the border from the Tanzania side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's you know it's lethal. And uh, people know what it is. 
um, and it's it's you know it's killing vultures, it's killing other raptors as well, and it's a serious problem. And so, how do you just with the Maasai, because the cattle is their that's their <laughs> that's their livelihood? How do you go into a village or talk to the Maasai and say we need to conserve these animals? You know, as you have predators taking out their cattle, how do you? Um, does, it, does that make sense? Yes. Well, I think well that's a good question, Corbin. And I think the first thing, um, well, first of all, in order to achieve conservation at a landscape level, you have to involve the local communities. There's no way somebody like myself or you can go in and say, hey, you got to stop doing this. It doesn't work. It will never work. You have to, first step is to develop trust with the community. You have to build that trust. And that's what we have done in the Masai Mara over these years. We have a very good partnership. Uh, the Peregrine Fund has a great partnership with, with BirdLife International mm-hmm. and Nature Kenya uh, and the Kenya Bird of Prey Trust. Uh, and with support from the Band Foundation, we're able to put together a very strong program with looking at top-down conservation where, you know, BirdLife, for example, is looking at the policy level, they're looking at the county government level, the government level to ensure that they understand the value of these vultures and put together protocols in order to prosecute those perpetrators that uh, do these poisonings. And then you've got at the bottom-up level, you've got Nature Kenya that's working at community level with engagements. You know, they're having a series of meetings with elders in different villages, with the chiefs. It's just, you know, it's just sitting around around a tree, roasting a goat, you know, having some, having some pop and saying, you know, tell us what your problems are. And they say, well, there are hyenas over here, there's some lions. It's building that trust that's very important. But then we're doing a lot of outreach work. Mm-hmm. We're showing them films. These are films that have Maasai people in them, that is in the local Maasai language. You know, so that makes a huge difference. And then the Peregrine Fund's role is to assess the scientific impact of that. So we're putting satellite transmitters on a number of vultures. Uh, so we did this about um, 10 years ago. Uh, a colleague of ours, Dr. Corinne Kendall from North Carolina Zoo, she was able to put 16 transmitters on 16 different vultures and within the first nine months we had five birds that died of poisoning. Oh my goodness. That gives us an annual mortality of 33% per annum. Hmm. That means, you know, for every 10 birds out there, three and a half birds die per year directly from poisoning. So what we're trying to do now is we're, because of all the outreach work we have done, uh, we are trying to assess whether that mortality has reduced. Uh, what we're seeing right now is there is greatened and heightened awareness of people. So people are now looking actively. They understand what the problem is. They understand very deeply that vultures play a vital ecosystem role. And they also understand that a landscape without vultures will mean they will have diseases in their lifestyle. There you and go. that is okay. critical. And that's the, ang- well, it's not really the angle. I mean, that's a fact. You know, loss of vultures will equal to an increase in diseases that will result in an increase in uh, diseases for for humans, for wildlife. For for humans. You just hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And and the majority of the people living there are benefiting directly from the tourism industry. As you know, the Maasai Mara is like the premier destination um, in Africa. A vast majority of them get financial benefits. So it is in their interest to ensure that 
you know, for example, if you know you go there on your honeymoon in mm-hmm. the Maasai Mara, <laughs> yeah. you don't want to see dead vultures all over on the ground. You don't want to see dead lions and hyenas or or dead wildebeest. Or I mean, wildebeest. and mind you, for those of you who are unaware, that Maasai Mara, the Great Migration, so went over a million animals, wildebeest and zebra yeah. and all different animals. And so, if we didn't have vultures as the cleanup crew, I couldn't even imagine. I don't think tourists would want to go there. Yeah. The the other thing that we have realized over time is, you know, the vulture problem if you look at it in detail, is, is not really a vulture problem. It's a predator problem. You know, it's a problem that comes about um, people retaliating to lions, hyenas, leopards. So we have developed very strong partnerships with predator programs as well. We're working closely with the uh, Mara Predator Project. We're working with Iwasa Lions. Shivani Bala is up in, in northern Kenya, uh, rebuilding the pride, the lion guardians. We're building, we're developing this alliance uh, and working and developing this network so that, you know, these people have got scouts and rangers on the ground and they're the intelligentsia, the informants, they listen, you know, they their, their role is to find out where conflicts occur. For example, if somebody has lost two goats and three sheep, you know, to a leopard, then they will go and talk to these people, they will placate the situation and sometimes they get the communities around them to help donate a sheep and a cow. And so, you know, that's the, and again, it's about developing trust. People have grievances, nobody listens to them. Um, and, then, and then to add to all that, what we're also doing is we're providing the tools to respond to poisoning events. So for example, when you have, you know, you, you wake up in the morning and you see a, a poisoned cow and you see maybe there are six dead vultures, a jackal and a hyena, and you've got 200 vultures circling above, mm-hmm. you know, your first Thing, the first thing you've got to do is to save those vultures from getting poisoned. So we are providing these training sessions all across the landscape in southern and northern Kenya so that people can be first responders. Collect the samples, decontaminate the site, make sure that they burn the carcasses, incinerate them to prevent that. You know, I, I, I don't think we'll ever completely eradicate the poisoning, but what we can do is minimize it. Uh, minimize it by providing them with the tools for that, but most importantly, creating the outreach work to make sure that the people on the ground own the vultures and they own the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And that's critical, and we're having some success. That's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. And I also think something, what you do is great with young children. You guys put on a Vulture Awareness Day, correct? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, Vulture Awareness Day uh, takes place every year in the first weekend of September, usually around the 5th or so. Uh, there are a number of schools around the Maasai Mara. About four years ago, we started a Maasai uh, mentorship program. Uh, and then, you know, just, just to say, again, coming back to the whole conservation of vultures, uh, one of the things that the Peregrine Fund is really committed about is investing in the next generation of conservation leaders. So, you know, you have, you have people on the ground. We provide them with the tools and the support to get them into graduate programs. We provide them with the training so that they can become the champions and the voices for nature, for the future. Mm-hmm. So we supported, uh, we supported four young, very, very charismatic uh, Maasai individuals. And through this mentorship program that was supported by the Disney Wildlife Conservation Fund, uh, they took uh, four kids, ages between 13 and 15, under their wing, inspired them, took them out into the field. We provided, provided them with a 10-day training mm-hmm. on all aspects. You know, a couple of kids had never seen a paved road in their entire life. Really? Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was a mind, you know, it was a 
complete mind opener for these guys. Wow. And these kids have grown up over the, over the now four years. Uh, and they're playing very important roles in their community. So, for example, in one community where we are supporting this kid through, uh, through, through school and high school now, there has never been a poisoning incident, um, you know, since we, since we had him on board. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's just we, What we'd like to do is expand this mentorship program all across southern Kenya. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as you know, their education obviously is a challenge uh, for many people who, I mean, if you imagine, they've never seen a paved road mm-hmm. even. Uh, but, you know, these kids, they're hungry. They're hungry for education. Uh, and kids are very uh, impressionable. And you mm-hmm. talk to them about vultures and, and, you know, the value of wildlife. Um, and it really sticks. That's if great. We can, if we can impact just one kid out of you know hundreds, I think we'll have we'll have achieved our goal. That's awesome. That's what you know. That's why I think like what I do, like when I do television or like radio or just media, I think if I could change one person's perception, I think I did. I actually know I did my job. Just one person. I mean, you know, hopefully more than one. But I think education is key. It is key, and you know, it's there are a lot of great people out there that are doing great work. Uh, a lot of Maasai champions on the ground mm-hmm. that, that developed the conservancies. Um, so, for example, about a month ago, we had a poisoning event uh, north of the Maasai Mara, mm-hmm. uh, and the communities mobilized themselves. You know, without without any sort of input from us, the elders and the chiefs sat together and they said, "Hey, this is a problem. We need to stamp it out." Uh, mm. So you had all these meetings. You had you know 30, 40 people coming on the ground. They realized it's a problem. They they don't want the image shattered. So, you know, they, you know, they, some of them probably know who did the poisoning. And so they probably had a word with him. And, and our approach really is not to, is not to uh, attack the guy or, you know, throw him in jail, but basically, you know, talk to him and say, look, we understand you have a problem. How can we help you? Well, one of the things we're doing is we, we've got, a, you know, we've got three fantastic um, field assistants who are going around doing surveys, identifying areas of where are high-risk poisoning hotspots. And once we identify these areas, it makes it easier for us to focus our conservation attention in these areas. So some people prefer their corrals fortified, so we can help them doing that. Others, you know, there's a, there's this uh, new sensation of having these Lion anti-deterrent lights. Yes, with, you talked about this in 2012. That's right. Yes, and was yeah. it your idea? No, no, it, I cannot. That's not my idea. There's a, <laughs> a young kid, a uh, young Maasai chap called Richard Terere, okay. who has got a great TED talk, by the way, okay. about these lion lights. And he wired up these lights on a motorcycle battery, and you know he was able to keep predators at bay. Like like red flashing lights, it's, correct? It's, or is it's, it? it could be red, it could be white. It's okay. just these. So when when predators see these lights, they associate you know, that there may be humans over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there haven't really been long-term concrete studies to show whether these lions get habituated to mm-hmm. these lights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there, there's a huge gap in that understanding. But I think I think there's a there's a great placebo effect in knowing that you've got these flashing lights so you can be a little more secure mm-hmm. in in knowing that, you know, maybe lions will not come. But there are other, there are other aspects. You know, you've got a fortified uh, a corral or boma, as you call okay. it, uh, and many of these uh, bomas now have, you know, they have dogs, and dogs are very, very helpful okay. in this. Um, and, you know, there are others working on great technology where you can have a beacon that speaks to your cell phone, and you've got colored lions or colored hyenas. If they come within 200 meters or 300 meters, wow. you know, they get zapped, or you get a message. 
and, and I think this technology is advancing, and I think okay. we'll make, we will make great strides in the future. Wow, what is just crazy. I couldn't imagine getting a little notification on the phone. Watch out, you have a hyena 300 yards away or something like that. That's just incredible. Okay, so you live a dream job. You travel the world. Take us a, a, a day in the life of you waking up in the Maasai Mara. Take us through your day. What are you doing? Uh, all right. And, and uh, you well, are an early bird, I have to I, say. <laughs> I got to have my coffee. That's the first Co- thing. Yeah. And you make the best coffee, okay. pressed. Do you have your presser with I, you? I carry my press with me. And <laughs> we have great Kenyan coffee. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I do it early in the morning. Wake up. You're by the campfire. Mm. Uh, I stay at a great camp, by the way. Um, it's called Matera Camp. Yes, with, with Monica. There. Yeah, with Monica oh. and with Anthony. Uh, Anthony's, yes. And they are such great supporters of our program. And, you know, others as well. There's Il Kiliani. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the conservancies at Naboisho and Ol Kinye mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Farini camps. You know, all these, you know, it's, it's great. Just, just so you know, you know, vultures, they have a huge problem. It's a huge problem. It's not easy raising money for them in a, in a place where lions and rhinos and elephants take center stage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these people are, are our partners. They help us. They give us subsidized accommodation. Sometimes they don't even charge us for accommodation. That's great. But they have good intentions. They want us to do something meaningful uh, because it's in their benefit and their interest as well to ensure that the integrity of the ecosystem is intact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I wake up in the morning. And then really fun. quick to interrupt, but to mind you, just Matera, because I've stayed there before, yes, it is I in know. the middle of the bush. Right like, you middle. see a bunch of trees, and I'm yeah. like, where are we going? You go into the trees, and you are yeah. in this yeah. African wilderness. It's a beautiful camp. It is beautiful. And Anthony, you know, he's a great friend. Yes. Okay, he's one of the best guides uh, over he's there. Great. He's got, you know, he's got Hawkeye, um, and he's helping all, all our students. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it's fantastic. So I usually go with Simon. Okay. We met. Thompson, yeah. Thompson, yeah. A legend. Uh, legend, definitely. No question about it. Oh, man. Uh, and so, you know, we do various things. We're mapping nests across the, the rivers, and we're looking at how these nests uh, are, you know, whether the, the camps and all the lodges around the river are having an impact on their uh, nesting and breeding habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we mainly do is we're trapping vultures or mm. we're, uh, we're trapping... Uh, I have a student, uh, Stratton, who's working on Marshall Eagles over there. Oh, yeah, oh, and that's uh, something I can. Yeah, that's a that's another great program. <laughs> Talk um, the Marshall Eagles. So these are the ones that take young gazelles, correct, or Thompson's exactly. gazelle? Exactly. Yeah, these are. This is Africa's largest eagle. Oh wow! So, uh, so the first thing we do is, you know, we have our coffee. Mm. Can't can't go out without coffee. Yep. Uh, Monica and Anthony pack us a great breakfast. So mm. off we go out. You know, we're out uh, before the sun comes out. And our, we, we drive around, uh, and basically we're looking for a dead wildebeest or a dead hartebeest or some dead animal mm-hmm. that vultures will come down. Um, and so we'll set up our gear and our trap uh, to try and trap vultures. Mm-hmm. And uh, then around 8 o'clock, they, they start coming down. You know, Chances are you, know, you catch a vulture every, every other day. So sometimes you get, they get trapped, sometimes they don't. Uh, and it's, it's great fun. So you, you know, you... And vultures are pretty big, as you know. Yes, I've you, caught one. I mean, not, I mean, with Ruby. with your help with Ruby. Is yeah. Ruby still with us? Ruby, uh, well, Ruby's transmitter uh, died. Okay, it was on for about two years, and which is great. Two years, though. yeah, yeah. And mind you, uh, through the eyes of the vulture, I'll put this in the episode notes. Is the little documentary I filmed with Dr. Verani, and it was just yeah. You see Ruby, and you put a GSM transmitter on Ruby, and 
That was incredible. Yeah. That was... That was Willard, remember? Oh, we Willard, Willard, Willard the Wildebeest, and I found the Wildebeest, and it was so crazy because I didn't even get contacts then. I had horrible vision. I forgot binoculars. I was probably the worst research <laughs> assistant ever. So I would see rocks, and you guys would be like, no, that's, you know, just a rock. But uh, that was such a fun experience to... So, so, then, just, we, uh, uh, so then, you know, yeah. when, we, when we get a vulture, so I'm holding it, and then Simon's mm-hmm. putting the transmitter on the bird, uh, you know, and it's, 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 it's a very gentle process. Uh, we keep, we try and keep the bird as calm as possible, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we let it go. You know, we take a few photos, we take blood, we take some measurements, um, and then it's it's sort of like a you know a heart stopping moment when you let it go. Oh yeah. You want to make sure it goes and it's fine. Uh, but you know they're all great, mm. and so far we have uh, we have six birds with with satellite transmitters on, uh, and they're flying all across the Mara. And our our whole aim is to find out whether, you know, they can survive a year without being poisoned. And again, and so even if they are poisoned in an area, then we can, then we know that that's a poisoning hotspot. So then we can go there, talk to the people, and find out what their problems are in mm-hmm. relation to human-wildlife conflicts um, and how we can help. And then we work closely with the predator people as well uh, to see how we can all, you know, identify practical solutions. Um, to prevent livestock attacks and also to ensure that predators and vultures continue to live on. Now, is this, I'm assuming this is a very fast-acting poison, correct? I mean, how fast-acting is this? Oh, it's very fast. Very fast. So very, so, very so, fast. so, there's yeah. no saving. If, yeah. I, if, if I saw a rupee eating a, I don't know, tainted carcass or something like that, there's no saving rupee. It's well, it depends on the amount of dosage, okay. you know, where, where the poison is. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, uh, you know, a bird would feed on... Uh, on the flesh that has a lot of poison mm-hmm. and some would take up sublethal levels. So we do find birds that are, um, you know, that are sick and on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so what, they, they, they can be treated. So you can give them a shot of atropine and, you know, look after them for a while. And most do get treated. Um, but, but this, you know, the whole issue with this is, is all across from sub-Saharan. So it's not only in East Africa. We're looking at poisonings in Mozambique, we're looking at poisonings in Botswana and in South Africa. And again, there's, you know, there's a great group of people in all these areas. Uh, a really good friend of mine, uh, Andre Bota from the Endangered Wildlife Trust, you know, he's developed this whole poisoning rapid response. Uh, they had over 103 birds poisoned in southern Mozambique. Okay. Uh, uh, there was another big poisoning event in Ruaha National, just outside Ruaha National Park in Tanzania where six lions were poisoned mm. and 72 vultures died. 72. 72 vultures, yeah. So it's a serious problem. But, you know, mm. I think I think the great positive out of all this is people are very aware. People are starting to look now for vultures, uh, whereas in the past, all these would go unreported. So I think what we're seeing now is is a sudden surge in awareness and people finding these poisoning events. Uh, and it's it's very possible that it you know it was happening all throughout. Um, so just just to add, Corbin, you know, within the East African region, mm-hmm. it's mainly as a result of retaliatory poisoning, mm-hmm. whereas in Southern Africa, the problem is far greater. It's as a result of uh, of ivory poachers. Oh and my! Who, are, who who you know they 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 would shoot mm-hmm. an elephant, and because they don't want the vultures to give them the lo- to give the authorities the location of the, the poached elephant, they will poison every single vulture. So that's a deliberate attempt to poison vultures, which hmm. is different. And then in West Africa, the situation is even more different. So it's it's very complicated in Africa compared to 
in South Asia where it was only uh, the, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. In West Africa, there is a strong fetish for oh. Walter body parts. For uh, what? I mean, I, but what do they think? Like an aphrodisiac or what is, is I... Well, uh, many African cultures believe that because vultures soar really high, they're able to see into the future. So okay. they have clairvoyant uh, capabilities. And so, you know, when there's a football, soccer, World Cup or something, vulture body parts are in demand because people believe that they can predict uh, soccer scores. Now, do they, do they eat them or hold on to them like a rabbit's foot, like a lucky uh, foot? I don't, I'm no, just... they, they boil them, they make oh, soup, they, oh. they crush them, they make powder, you know, all sorts of things. And so, mind you, no scientific, obviously no scientific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no... It's all, it's all rubbish. All rubbish, yeah. yeah. And so again, you know, the idea oh. is, is to is to demystify that and then, you know, have all these awareness programs. And it's basically, it boils down to education. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. these are creatures that are, have been around way longer than humans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, you know, we're responsible for their well-being. Just like wondering, how do you go to West Africa and try to substitute, <laughs> like, how, you know what I mean? Is that something we're working on? Like, how can you say, uh, you know, well, how can you educate them? Yeah, I, th I think at the moment, our greatest challenge is to develop the capacity Okay. and to invest in the next generation of conservation leaders. Mm. Because, you know, in Africa, not very many people get into the field of conservation, mm. uh, birds, uh, wildlife, and nature. Mm. You know, people are barely making, a, you know, making ends meet. Barely, you know, they're looking for their evening meal. Where are they mm. going to get their meal from? So we need to find these shared values. What's in it for them? Why would they want to protect the environment? So it's going to take time. Um, but you know we've we're plodding along along with all our partners, so mm -hmm. uh, we we cannot give up. Yeah, and you're I think you're so inspirational. You are. I mean, you grew up in Nairobi, in Kenya. You know, got your PhD. You're working uh, at one of the greatest vice president, one of the greatest <laughs> conservation. Well, you're rolling your eyes, but it's a true thing. You're doing just great things. I think you're really inspirational for those kids in Kenya to see you that you can achieve great things. I mean, yeah. you fly all over the world and you educate people and. Well, thank you, Corbin. It's, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's all teamwork, you know? Yeah. Uh, as I said, the Peregrine Fund is, is a great institution. I'm very honored and mm -hmm. privileged to be a big part of this, this big family. Uh, yesterday, we, uh, we had a birthday for our founding chairman, uh, Professor mm -hmm. Tom Cade, uh, who really is the man who saved the North American Peregrine. So, you know, it's, it's, it's we live through and get energized by people such as, such as Dr. Tom Cade, and others as well around mm -hmm. the world, you know, Dr. Jane Goodall, oh, um, and you know all the great people around the world who do these amazing things. And I think your role in spreading the message globally and around the world mm -hmm. uh, is very important. And I think also to break the dogma that you know vultures are not just disgusting, ugly creatures, but they are. Well, I mean, they're certainly not sexy, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they yeah. play a vital role. I think that, there's some sexy vultures. Okay, I well. Think so. <laughs> <laughs> the white-headed vulture. That's yes. pretty cool. Bird. See, yeah, yes. that is the yes. most endangered vulture, uh, if not raptor, uh, on the African continent. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's just yeah. So we've we've got to save these birds because without vultures, you know, we're going to destroy the integrity mm -hmm. of the African savannas. And I love how you do, like I said, all these educational programs at Boise State University. That's how I got connected with you. Yes. you guys did this great program where you allowed these young biologists to go to Africa and you allow them to go to India 
and see firsthand what is going on. And I think that is so fantastic because I never would have had the opportunity to go to Africa and learn so much if it wasn't for you and the Peregrine Fund. Yeah, well, thank you. And I think it's, you know, to me personally, it's very gratifying to see young people such as yourself, you Mm -hmm. know, when you come out, you know, six or seven years ago and, you know, everything is just mind-blowing and and you look at leopards and lions and and, and everything and you go, wow, wow. (laughs) And then you get the the behind-the-scenes tour and then you get to understand that, you know, conservation has got its its problems and even though this place is beautiful and it's such a great Garden of Eden, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and, you know, having every single fabric and thread of people and you know you're part of that mm-hmm. uh, and there will be others as well uh, who will come in and be part of this big global family uh, not only to save vultures but to you know to basically save the biodiversity of our of our beautiful planet mm-hmm. and I and I'm speaking for a lot of people who entered that program a lot of people were unaware of the vulture crisis and that was back in 2000 I think 2012 we went back right. but we learned so much yeah. you know yeah. We just heard Africa and lions and hyenas. and <laughs> So let's speak about that really quick. I'm a little bitter. You bitter? want to hear why okay. I'm bitter? I'm bitter. Because what was the animal I wanted to see in Africa? What? Please tell the audience. What was it? Corbin wanted to see a leopard. <laughs> so bad. And I keep sending him pictures of leopards. <laughs> I missed one by seconds. Remember that? I, and you always see him. You're a leopard magnet. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have this researcher, Darcy, correct? Correct. And you said she's a leopard magnet, and you said she doesn't even care. I mean, she's more focused on the birds than the leopards. I've died. Yeah. Um, well, you know what that means, Corbin. It yeah, means you have to you come just, back. You just have to come back. And, in fact, I'll tell you a story. Okay. So Stratton had, uh, you know, he's, you know he's, putting the, he's put these camera traps um, all over, mm-hmm. and um, he's got uh, a Marshall Eagle chick, and there's a photograph of a predator that took a Marshall Eagle chick. I'm not going to say what it is. Leopard, of course. (laughs) I'm like, what? No, (laughs) of course. Wow. I mean, unfortunate for the chick. That's not, that's not good. Yeah, but it's all part of nature. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's okay. So I want to, I want you to tell the listeners about something else because you've had some wild experiences. And when I come back to Africa, if you allow me to come back and follow you along, uh, (laughs) Savo National Park. Yes. Which I'm a huge fan of Ghost in the Darkness. Right. Which, uh, for those of you who haven't seen, it's the, I don't know, quote-unquote true story, would you say that, of the attacks of the the, sure. the, the, the the two man-eating lions in Africa in the 1900s, correct? Early 1900s or 18? It, it was uh, the 1890s, the Eight, early part of the 1890s. 1890s. Yeah. And what happened in Savo? What was going on? Well, um, as you know, uh, building the railway was a big part of ensuring growth of trade and commerce in interior British East Africa, as it was called at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, and so from the port of Mombasa, uh, you know, the, um, they had figured out, I mean, the Indian railway network is the largest network in the world. And mm-hmm. so they got people from India to come and build a railway. And there's a place by the Savo River, um, just, um, just close to a place called Bachuma Gate. And uh, this was a, they had to build a bridge in order to get across with the rest. So they were waiting mm-hmm. for all the materials to come from Mombasa. And that was going to take about, you know, four to six weeks. And uh, all these people, about 300 people camped. And every night or every other night, people were getting pulled out of their tents by these man-eating lions. And it was Colonel Patterson that mm-hmm. uh, was called in to, uh, to get rid of them. And it was quite a challenge. Uh, finally, he, he shot these two lions. But, of course, that area is, uh, 
It's, that whole area is known as man eater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I asked you, I was like, uh, you know, of course, have you seen the movie? And you're like, yeah, yeah. you've said you stayed at Man Eater's Camp. That's, That's what right. it's called. That's right, yeah. Okay, so tell them your story. So my story, oh. I'm, uh, I'm sweating I know thinking sweating. about it. <laughs> so we do this, we do annual bird of prey surveys uh, in northern Kenya and southern Kenya. And one of our routes, so what we do is we drive over 2,000 kilometers and we count every single bird of prey uh, along the way whether it's sitting on a power line or a tree, we stop, we record it. We have this amazing phone app called uh, GRIN, which is the Global Raptors Impact Network. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a, an iPhone or an Android phone, you can just, you know, you can log in. And if you see, uh, now it's global. So if you see a golden eagle or a bald eagle somewhere, you just, you just click. It records the latitude and the longitude uh, on all the information you want, and it goes onto a server. And you're helping, to, you know, this global program to identify every single raptor mm-hmm. in the world. So that's what we do, and part of our route takes us through Savo National Park. So we stay at this wonderful place called the Gulia Safari Camp, which is up on a hill that overlooks this wonderful valley. There's a watering hole there, elephants come. Mm. So I was, with, I was with a couple of my colleagues uh, that evening, and uh, we had our dinner. Uh, we saw elephants that were coming down the watering hole. There were buffalo as well, mm. and then about eight lions came. And, you know, there was panic and there was, like, stampede. But it was all, it was great. You know, we got some lovely pictures. Uh, and so after dinner, um, I realized, you know, how coffee is very important. <laughs> I realized that I left my coffee press back in the car. So I told my friends, I said, all right, I'm going to get my coffee press. And so I walked out of the door. And you had to go up some stairs because these, these uh, gazebos were built on a slope. And we were in number six. And so I had to go up the stairs, turn right, and walk to the parking in order to get my, uh, my coffee press. And as soon as I got up and I turned right, I had not walked three steps when I heard this huge lion roar. And I, like, my heart just stopped. I froze. And I turned around, and I saw these two lionesses. They could not have been more than three meters away from me. And they were looking straight into my eyes. Uh, fortunately, I had the presence of mind to not run. I don't know what told me, so I just walked very slowly, uh, and my entire life oh, just flashed through my head. Oh my god! Uh, and that walk was maybe twenty-five yards mm-hmm. to the car park, uh, but it took like forever. Um, and so I, I finally I got to my car, and <laughs> like an idiot. You know, instead of getting in, I opened the back and I started to look for my coffee. <laughs> what what am do? I doing? You know? So I, uh, I quickly realized I'd made a mistake and I got in my car and then I opened the sunroof. And fortunately, these lionesses followed me a little bit, but then they went up the hill. Oh, good. And I said, oh, thank goodness for that. So I, I you know, I, 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 I got a phone call from my buddies in the, in the camp and said, are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm okay. I survived. And as I'm talking to them, I look around, and there's a huge male lion oh. right next to my car. He was watching me all this time. Oh, my God. So, yeah, these are some of these crazy stories. that You, you would have been yeah. a goner if you would have ran, I, right? Totally. Yeah, we, we would not have been having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you would be. Here lies Munir. I know. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. there any other crazy experiences that you've had? Uh, have you had one with a buffalo once? I have had one with a buffalo, yes. This is in Hellsgate National Park, mm-hmm. where you've been. Uh, this was during my PhD studies. 
and we were collecting, I was collecting data on mole rats. This is, uh, I was doing a study on... Naked mole rats? Uh, no, these were yellow-toothed mole rats, okay, actually. Sir. They burrow themselves deep down. Mm -hmm. And I was working on a species called the auger buzzard, which is very closely related to your red-tailed hawk. Uh, they almost look identical. Um, although the auger buzzard is, is, uh, is prettier. <laughs> um, and they feed on these mole rats. So I was, I was walking all, uh, along... Um, counting these mole rat mounds as my transect to document their abundance. Mm. And it was a very dry period, and, you know, all the buffalo had, the, the herds had split up because it was incredibly dry. And um, I was counting these mole rats, and this bush, I could hear the, these rustling sounds. And I turned around, and this big male buffalo was, oh. you know, he was maybe 15 yards away, and he mock-charged. Oh, my God. through my files and my notebooks and everything, and I just you ran. ran? I ran. Where'd you yeah, go? I ran straight to my car. It was about a quarter of a mile away, parked there. Did you turn, did you look I behind you? I did not you? turn behind me, but... Um, oh, my God. Yeah, but he came, fr I could hear his grunting. No. And his panting behind. Yeah. Oh, my... That's, I don't think uh, I could have... <laughs> that's, would you rather, was that, okay, would you rather... That was scary. Was that the scarier lions. than the lion? Absolutely. Buffaloes and hippos kill more people in Africa. See, I love hippos. Yeah. But I almost... I know your hands. story. I was there. <laughs> that was terrifying. That My was heart. Terrifying. And the, the thing that no one believed me, but when you hear, basically we were in Lake Navasha. Yes. And we all stopped. We were surveying African fish eagles, right. which is what you do. And, and I say sur surveying, quote unquote, just taking pictures and, yes. you know, and we, you know, looking at these beautiful African fish eagles. And we all stopped to go to the bathroom and I went the farthest out or I don't know. And I just heard this, mm, yes. mm, like right in the reeds. Right. And I swear I ran so fast. I think some of, I mean, I, yeah. And everyone was like laughing. Oh, that was terrifying. My heart was just like. It was terrifying. No, it was. I mean, yeah. One has to be really careful. You know, many people get killed by buffalo, uh, by by hippo as well. Would you rather be killed by a hippo or a buffalo? Uh, that's oh. a good question. I would actually rather not be killed by any animal. Yeah, but I mean, I'm taught. Yeah, what do you think would be scarier? I don't know. Jeez. I think that'd all be scary, but you know, it's a pretty cool way to go, though. It would be. I think you'll be, be cool remembered for a long time. Yes, and I have to say, just speaking about Lake Navasha, it was fantastic. You, of course, took us there. We stayed at El Samir Field Study Center, which is a great place. Yes. and uh, we stayed on cabins on the lake. And the hippos would come out at night, and they are so surprisingly silent. Yes, you can't even hear them at yeah. all. I mean, any close encounters with the hippos? Hippos, um, not as close as the ones I had with buffalo or lions, but uh -huh. you know, they they come out at night. Uh, they graze. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, to think of something that weighs about a ton that comes out, they're very silent. But you can hear them, you can hear them chomping the oh, grass. Yeah. It's like a, you know, mm -hmm. these natural lawnmowers. Uh, they pull out divots. Mm -hmm. um, and they're great. It's great to watch them. Uh, do never use flash photography. Oh, I didn't know that. When you're close to hippos, especially if you're camping. Oh. Uh, a couple of people have been, you know, they've got hippo tusks teeth going straight through their backside. Are you serious? Right through the tent. Oh, my. Oh, um, through the tent? Through the tent. Oh as somebody God. was trying to take flash what? photography. What? Yeah. Is this is something that I, <laughs> that I no one told me? No. Did you fail to tell me that? Yeah, no, these things happen. So yeah. I, I, I think, I think the take home message is, you know, we're, we've, humans have really encroached on, on the, the territory of wildlife. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's inevitable it's, as our population expands. I think we just have to be a little more, um, empathetic, mm -hmm. uh, sympathetic as well uh, to their needs and give them their space uh, rather than, you know, just go all out um, and, uh, you know, try to get a glimpse, try to get the best shot and mm -hmm. everything. Just give them their space, you know, and then 
and I guess this message is, is not only for people looking at hippos, but, you know, people game viewing and wildlife viewing all throughout the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, uh, I, think, I think we really need to change the way we start uh, going on these safaris as well because it's, uh, it's getting crazy in some places. Yeah, and I remember this was a really sad moment. So there's only a few, a handful of black rhinos left in the Maasai Mara. And yeah. I've seen them um, every time I've been to Africa, which is very lucky. Yes. You said it's luckier than to see a leopard. But the second time I was there, I don't know if you remember this, but because you go to Africa all the time. but And you go to the Maasai Mara. But it was, we were leaving Matira, our camp, in the morning. And there were this group of safari vehicles chasing yeah. this black rhino. And his tail was raised up in the air. He was sprinting. It was the most uncomfortable feeling and we didn't even stop we just we were like this is not right i mean yeah. do you remember they were chasing this i do this remember i do remember i think is that what you're talking yeah, about just I, I think the responsibility comes from the tourists themselves because yeah. you know uh you know you, you do get a lot of crazy photographers who just they want the best shot they want the head-on shot mm. and they will do anything you know and uh, they they offer uh greater tips to their guides or drivers to do mm. that uh and i think this this practice really should be reevaluated. Uh, and I think, again, it's just changing the behavior of both the tourists and the guides to understand that, you know, the animals really have the right way mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, we're encroaching on their land. So, yeah, again, it'll need a lot of introspection mm -hmm. um, and, and probably stricter laws on how and regulations on how one views game. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Verani, thank you so much for doing this. Do you have any takeaway messages for young scientists listening to this or people wanting to work with wildlife or who want to make a difference in the world? Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my passion was always cricket. And then mm. uh, after cricket, I got a job in a bank. What? Uh, yeah, I worked in a bank for about a year and a bit. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, uh, while the money was good, I just didn't like to be indoors. And I always had a passion for going outdoors and, you know, being in the wild. I was fortunate enough to play for uh, a very uh, premier cricketing club mm -hmm. in Kenya that had some great mentors who actually introduced me to camping um, and, and wildlife. And, you know, Hitesh, if you're listening to this, uh, this is for you. <laughs> hey, Hitesh. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And uh, so, I, you know, my take-home message is just follow your dream. You know, you have a dream and a passion. If you Just do it. And uh, don't look back because the passion is way more important than the idea of, you know, well, this is not going to pay me enough. So, you know, and I, and I look at you, Corbin, and, you know, this is your passion. Yes. You always wanted to do this. Always. Know? And, uh, you know, I, I hope one day you become the next David Attenborough. So. Thank <laughs> you. I'm going to try to get him on yeah. the podcast, Good. actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, say hi to him. <laughs> yeah, I will. Uh, no, I think that's a great message. Follow your passion. Have perseverance, yes. I think. Um, I always tell people that. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, just have perseverance and go for it. I think the sky's the limit. No pun intended with the vultures. But <laughs> I think so. But uh, thank you so much. Once again, congratulations on all your successes. And uh, when are you going to move to Boise? Uh, I'm still working on it. So. <laughs> it's hard to leave Africa. How could you? Uh, it's, it's really difficult. I, but, I don't uh, think I could. Yeah, but, you know, I think, I think I've reached a point where my skills are, are needed at a, at, a, at a global level, at a different level. Uh, and Africa and Asia will always remain in my heart and we'll continue mm -hmm. to, to focus our, our efforts there as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th I think, uh, you know, a, it's, it's, it's very hard to imagine a world without raptors, uh, mm -hmm. without vultures as well. So mm -hmm. we've still got to work. We, you know, we have our work cut out for us. We've got to find these champions to, to carry the torch and make a difference and protect birds of prey around the world. 
That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Corbin, for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.